Hello, welcome to Eagle Tales, a podcast from the Central High School Foundation, keeping you connected to the nest through storytelling and original interviews. I'm your host, Josh Busey. Before we get started, though, a little bit about the foundation. We were established in 1996 to support present and future Central students. And today we are even more committed to preserving the values of a Central High School education. The foundation supports the school through many activities, like building relationships with alumni, fundraising, student scholarships, teacher classroom grants, and a lot more. We want to work with you. We are proud of the accomplishments that our students, staff, and 35,000 alumni achieve every day. Your patronage not only supports Central, but it also strengthens Eagle Nation. Visit our website to learn more at chsfomaha.org. It is my honor to introduce our guest for episode 12 of Eagle Tales, Pat Venditti, who is a 2004 alumnus of Central and 2021 Creighton University Athletics Hall of Fame inductee, will be joining me shortly. Pat is a former professional baseball pitcher who played for six different baseball clubs during his 13-year career. However, he got his start at Central, compiling a 15-4 and record during his senior year, earning all Nebraska second-team honors. Pat, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Yeah, excited to be on here. Brought back some good memories there. I always like to start every episode out by giving our guest a moment to introduce himself to our listeners. So, Pat, maybe tell us a little bit about yourself, what neighborhood you grew up in, what elementary schools you went to, um, what activities you participated in. Yeah, absolutely. I grew up not too far from Central there, down in Little Italy. We grew up on uh, 7th Street, myself and my three siblings. And then uh, when it came time uh, for, for grade school, I was homeschooled. Homeschooled all the way up and through 8th grade. And then from from there to Central. And then there to, as you said, to Creighton. And then on a baseball journey. And now uh, my wife and family, we live here in, in Peoria, Illinois. And as far as uh, interests go, my, my three little ones, I have a five, four, and two-year-old. They, they take up quite a bit of my time. Golf, I do enjoy some golf and ping pong on the side. And I found a, uh, a good group of friends here here in Peoria, too. So between that and keeping in touch with uh, my old Central crew, we, we stay pretty busy. And you had some siblings that also went to Central. Is that right? Yeah, my sister Katie and Anna went there. And then my, uh, my late Uncle Joe was a uh, security guard there for for a very long time until he was uh probably close to 80 years old he was patrolling the halls there and you know making a lot of friends with all the students over the years you were involved with not only sports but activities such as deca spanish club chamber orchestra when you were at central what do you remember about your time as a central eagle wow i have a lot of fond fond memories I would say that the majority of my memories, though, come from those times hanging out with friends either before school, during lunch, in the courtyard there. I don't think there's a better place to hang out in any high school in the state than, than in that courtyard. A lot of fond memories there. And then as far as the, the clubs go and things like that, yeah, it, it seemed like there was always something to do. I really enjoyed student council with Mrs. Storm, orchestra with Miss Moriarty. We, we, we had a lot of fun there. Now, when you were at Central, was it air-conditioned? No, because I remember my freshman and sophomore years, we would have classes canceled because it would be too hot in the afternoon. So 
it'd be a little terrible in the morning, but you get out at like noon. So it'd be okay. You know what I mean? Uh, but I think then maybe junior and senior year, we had air conditioning. I don't remember the exact uh, details of it. When I was going through some of my notes, I think when you were there, maybe it was right before they were working on the football stadium, probably. Does that yeah. sound right? Yeah, well, yeah, because we would have classes out uh, on the old football turf field there. They put up a bunch of portable classrooms. I don't remember how many buildings, but I do vividly remember having to come outside for classes out there on the turf. So it sounds like uh, you said Mrs. Storm, there were a couple teachers that maybe impacted you when, as your time as an Eagle. There were, yeah, there was, I mean, I, I'm not even going to be able to list them <laughs> all here. Storm was awesome. Mr. Foster, Mr. Wilson, you go up and down the board. There were, there were so many, a lot of years there and had profound impact on, on so many students. So you graduated from Central and you pretty much moved next door, right? You went to Creighton as a walk-on player for the baseball team, but you did actually have a connection to Creighton when you were a youngster, right? Yeah, we would uh, we would go to a lot of those games growing up. I remember going to those games with my dad and Elvis Dominguez, who was the old Central baseball coach, was then a coach at Creighton. So I would go down there and get, you know, pitching lessons, hitting lessons. I would go to all their camps. And then as my years went on at Central, it didn't necessarily seem like that was going to be a reality to go there. But I, I had a good senior season and was it was able to walk on. Before that, I was committed to go to either Midland Lutheran or Missouri Western, one of the two. And then once that um, offer to walk on at Creighton came, it was something that, that I had to jump on. At that time when you committed to Creighton, did you know anybody else within the class from the Omaha area that committed at the same time? Oh yeah, we had we had kids from from Central going there with me, not for baseball, but Steve Hogan was a golfer down there. Uh, Steve was in my class, a fantastic golfer, still a uh, a pillar in the community. Uh, he's a lawyer now. He did a a lot of work last year to help a nonprofit that I have set up for uh, Chris Gradeville, who was an Omaha Bryan student, former teammate. We set up a baseball camp in his honor, and Steve did a great job of helping me get the uh, the nonprofit set up so we can do some good things with those those summer baseball camps. When you were at Creighton, what was that experience like playing for Coach Service? You know what? He's a, a fantastic coach, a true motivator, someone who gets every last ounce of potential you have. He gets that out of you every day. And it was it was a bit of an adjustment, you know, like like many college athletes feel going from high school to college. But uh, for me personally, it was uh, probably the most pivotal point in my baseball career and having a mentor and a leader like him was a massive help to me. I'm sure playing a sport at a division one level takes up a lot of time, energy. How were you able to balance your schoolwork with all that going on? <laughs> it does take a lot of time. Um, and I, I tell my wife all the time, I wish I would have, you know, focused on the books a little <laughs> bit harder. Um, I, it, it still did take a lot of time and we would have study hall 10 hours a week up until you get your GPA to a certain number. So you would have your, you know, 40 hours of practice, 15 hours of class, 10 hours of study hall. And then obviously all the extra studying you're having to do on the side or tests and quizzes and projects. It really left for no free time, but at the same time, you know, it was, it was a lot of fun doing all the things we were doing, whether it be playing baseball, hanging out with friends, 
even a lot of those classes, once you get to college, you're, you're studying things that you want to study. It's not like you have to take maybe, you know, a math class or an English, English class, if those are the things that maybe don't interest you as much, you get to spend a little bit more time on your career path and things like that. So that makes, that makes the schoolwork that much more enjoyable. When you were there, Creighton was still in the Missouri Valley Conference, you know, Wichita State, you guys are some really good games with Nebraska during that time. Anything stick out to you in particular? Any games that you played in? Those Nebraska games were a lot of fun back then. We would, uh, you know, we'd have huge crowds at Rosenblatt there, the old side of the College World Series, 20, 25,000 there on a Wednesday night, which is just crazy looking back and, and thinking about that. But the the one college game that probably sticks out the most is uh, the night uh, my junior year when we played Wichita State for the Missouri Valley Conference uh, tournament final. We we had never won a, a conference championship at that point at Creighton, which is crazy to think about. But we you know had gone however many years without winning one of those, and we we was deep into the tournament, obviously all the way to the championship, and we didn't have anybody else to start. So I started that game. Uh, I was typically a reliever. I would come out of the bullpen on most days, but that day uh, I pitched into the seventh inning and uh, we, we were able to to bring home our first conference championship that night and it was uh, unforgettable. You experienced success at Central, of course, and you were starting to make waves at Creighton on their pitching staff. Broadly speaking, though, was there a moment when you realized that you had something special and you were able to compete at a higher level? Yeah, you know, you, you never really know just how far you can take things. But I think once you, you taste some success at a level that you maybe thought wasn't possible, I think that goes a long way mentally. Uh, in my freshman year, I did not perform well. And then finally, sophomore year, my pitching coach, Travis Wyckoff, uh, made some adjustments with me. He dropped me down sidearm left-handed. So instead of throwing the ball over the top, like most people, I would then throw sidearm. And I was able to to do things a lot more efficient there. So that that adjustment for the first time in my life made baseball seem a little easier, if that makes sense. And then once once I started to have some success, the mental approach and you know things that you have day in and day out, it just gets better and better because you're going out there and no longer, you know, kind of squeezing by. You're going out there and actually able to dominate some hitters, dominate some outings. And I think once you feel that, that's that's when that true confidence builds. Something that I was thinking about, do you consider one arm technically slightly better than the other? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, I am a truly right-handed individual. I don't know if I've done anything. I stopped pitching a little over two years ago. I don't think I've done anything left-handed <laughs> since. Um, so uh, I, I am a natural righty. It was just the left hand was one of those things that my dad taught me at a very young age. And anytime you start something that young, you're able to, to, to do it. I think we started when I was three and then it, it took a lot of, a lot of time and effort after that and fine tuning and tweaking, but, uh, yeah, I'm a natural right-hander. So you started working on it when you were about three or so, I mean, you had a special glove, right? That you wore during games when you would switch. Did you have that in college too? Yeah. So when I was uh, six years old, my dad called the Mizuno Glove Company in their headquarters in Osaka, Japan. Um, I have no idea how he did any of that. <laughs> but I do remember being in the kitchen and him tracing my hand 
the little hand trace and then he faxed that nobody uses fax machines anymore but he faxed that to the uh to the company and several months later i had my first mizuno uh ambidextrous glove it has an extra finger and then the pockets in the middle but yeah starting at seven years old i used that and uh, when I got to Creighton, we were sponsored by Louisville Slugger, so I, I was able to get them to make one for me. But then once once I got to professional baseball, uh, Mizuno was was my glove provider there for the next 13 years. I knew a couple kids growing up that maybe they they considered themselves kind of a switch hitter, for example, but in games they would really only hit from one side. Did you ever consider what you did, I guess, kind of a gimmick at first, kind of just like I'm gaining strength for the other arm, but not really, I might not ever use it kind of thing. Or were you this whole time thinking I could really pitch from both, both sides of the rubber? Yeah. And to be honest, that is one of the questions that I get asked the most. Did it seem like me? Was it a gimmick? Was it a side show or whatever you, you have? And honestly, those thoughts, they never even came into my mind. I was so focused on, you know, pitching in that whatever team I was on at the moment and getting to the next level, I had so many other things to think about that that didn't even enter my mind. And looking back, I could see why people would think that. But for me, it was, it was a passion. It was a career and it was, was something that, uh, I didn't think about a whole lot. So you had a very successful career at Creighton leading the school to its first Missouri Valley conference tournament title. And at one point having a 43 scoreless inning streak, you were drafted by the Yankees not once, but twice. Did you have a favorite baseball team growing up? And talk about how it was like to get drafted by the Bronx Bombers. Yeah. You know, as far as favorite teams going up, uh, probably the Cubs. Back then, we didn't have cable. So all we had was WGN and TBS. TBS was the Atlanta network. But I remember watching Harry Carey and those Cubs games growing up. And I would have to say, yeah, uh, the Cubs were my favorite team growing up. Uh, and then, you know, being drafted by the Yankees was something, especially coming from uh, the baseball background that I came from. It didn't really seem like that was going to happen until maybe midway through my junior year there at Creighton. And then you kind of alluded to that earlier, talking about uh, tasting that first bit of success. It was really that year that things kind of took off for me in that scoreless inning, inning streak that you just referenced uh, that, that definitely opened some eyes and got those opportunities for me over the next many years. Before that time, had you ever been to a Cubs game or a Yankees game or any professional Major League Baseball game? Uh, yeah, growing up, I, I went to uh, a couple Cubs games. Growing up, our trips in the summer were usually to Kansas City or St. Louis. So I, the bulk of my Major League games were the Royals and Cardinals games growing up. But I, there were a couple Cubs games in there as well. So I have to ask about this because I played baseball growing up and there was this clip going around the school when I was in high school when you were playing for the Staten Island Yankees, a farm team for New York. There was a back and forth between with you and a switch hitter, uh, Ralph Enriquez. Do you remember that play? Do you know what I'm talking about? Oh, yeah. I, I could never forget that night. I, I still get asked about that probably once a week. I mean, I don't think I've never seen anything happen like that before. What was that even like? to be on the mound in that kind of situation. It was a crazy story all the way around. So we were, we were on Cody Island there. That's where the Brooklyn Cyclones play. So that giant roller coasters in the background. And it was, I think my second professional game. I didn't pitch the first one, um, but 
after you're drafted, you go to the training facility, wherever that is. So I was uh, with the Yankees. We went to Tampa for a, a week or two to kind of see where the 50 draft picks they took, kind of where they were, you know, in their baseball journey. Some stayed there, some didn't sign. I did sign and um, they assigned me to their rookie ball team, which meant we were going to, to Staten Island for the summer, um, Staten Island, New York. And um, I remember before the game, one of our, our coordinators, one of the decision makers within the Yankees organization, as far as who moves up and down was there. And he said, brought me aside. He said, there's no rule for what you do. So just keep switching back and forth until <laughs> they come up with something. So I said, okay. And you know, the, the situation came around, I think in the ninth inning there where Ralph came up and was a switch hitter. And we did exactly what I was instructed to do. And there was a, a big delay in the game. Uh, and that night, the umpire made the hitter stay right-handed, which is a huge advantage for a pitcher because they don't see breaking balls coming from the same side of their body. So he was, you know, a right-handed hitter seeing something that he'd never seen before, which gave me a huge advantage. And unfortunately, the next day, the uh, rule came <laughs> down. So no more advantage there on switch hitters, but that's that's all right. Yeah, that didn't take very long for them to come out with some kind of decision after all that happened. <laughs> no, and I don't think they put a whole lot of thought into it, to be honest, just because why would you when it's a, a one-off? But I could see this becoming an issue again because there's a kid at Mississippi State right now who's a freshman and is one of their premier pitchers as a switch pitcher throwing in the mid-90s from both sides. And I could see his side kind of you know, raising some red flags with that rule. And I think he would have an argument if he does, especially if you look at uh, my statistics against switch hitters compared to regular hitters. There, There's at least a, a discussion to be had about why the rule is the way it is. What does it feel like to have a rule named after you? Because, I mean, when it comes to pitching, um, it, it's a little bit different than switch hitting, right? I mean, you're not going to have that happen very often, but as you just said, it could happen again. You never know. Yeah, it's it's pretty cool. You know, baseball being so so important to my life, my family's life, uh, to be able to, to to go into the game and, and do something like that. Uh, in the moment, you don't appreciate it, but now that uh, I'm out of the game and you know things like that still get brought up, it's it's pretty cool to have an impact like that. You had a journey that took you all around the country and the world playing professionally and you made it to the major league baseball level in June of 2015 for the Oakland athletics. Talk to us about how you remained confident and believed in yourself, you know, through all of those trials and tribulations. And what was it like to pitch at the major league baseball level? <laughs> you know what? That's uh, that journey is something that is unforgettable. Obviously uh, there, there were a lot of uh, difficult times in there. Uh, going through the minor leagues, I don't even know how many teams I played for before I finally got that call uh, in 2015, <laughs> and I thought that was a lot. But then the next six years, where I was battling, going up and down, you know, moving city to city, that was something too. But you know, I, I think some of the the biggest parts of that journey were in winter ball. So what happens is in in the regular season here in the United States, your minor league season's over. And you don't make very much money in the minor leagues. It's a little better now, but definitely not enough to sustain a family. So uh, 2009, I had my first opportunity to go play winter ball where they pay far greater than they do in the minor leagues. And you're able to continue training. So it was either I come home to Omaha, 
train and either be a substitute teacher or I, I did some basketball refereeing um, or go do your job and, and be paid a lot better for it. So my first, my first year, I got to go to Mexicali, Mexico. The, they call it the Liga Pacifico down there in Mexico. And we would play teams from Culiacan, Hermosillo, Aguasave, Los Mochis, travel all throughout Mexico for the winter, playing in front of eight, 10,000, 15,000 a night, depending on what city you're in. And more than that, have your eyes opened up to uh, a culture and uh, something different than you're used to. That was quite the experience and, and the competition was very strong too. So I think that was a big part of that that minor league journey. And from there, I was able to play in Los Mochis a, a different season um, in the Dominican Republic, in the capital there in Santa Domingo. We, we won a Dominican championship. And then I actually had a, uh, a, uh, a stint in Venezuela as well in Maracaibo there. When you did have your Major League Baseball debut, how far out did you get called out to, to play? Like, what was that process even like? Yeah, that was another crazy story. Like you said, it was 2015. And typically when you play a AAA baseball game, it's not on TV. So it was one random night that we were in Nashville. I was playing AAA for the A's in Nashville. And we were the uh, national game of the week. So we were on national TV. I think it was like CBS Sports Network or something like that. So they had the whole field mic'd up. And down the line where the bullpen is, there was a microphone there too. I didn't really think much of it during the game, but after the game was over, I got called into my manager's office. And the furthest thing from my mind at the time was getting called up because even though I was pitching well, we had four guys in the AAA bullpen with me that were all on the major league roster. And the way that works is there's 40 guys on a roster that can be called up at any time. So... There's more, more guys than that that are in AAA. So if you're not on that roster, the likelihood of you getting called up is less because they have to take someone off of that permanent roster and add you. But anyway, I, I get called into the office and my first thought was, oh no, there was microphones down in the bullpen. Uh, I might've said something <laughs> inappropriate. Conversations, you never know where they're going to go during a bullpen game, especially early on when the guys aren't locked in. Uh, so I was thinking back, I was like, I don't think I said anything that bad, but let's go find out. Um, and my manager, Steve Sarconi, um, played a little bit of a prank on me, but, uh, in the end told me that I was getting called up to Boston. We were playing in Fenway the next night, uh, A's versus Red Sox. And by this time it was almost midnight in Nashville. So he's like, travel secretary is going to call you, but, uh, you know, go tell your family. And then the cool thing was when I walked out of his office, the 25 guys from my team knew what was happening. And they had known about just how long my journey was. So all 25 of those guys were, were right out there when I walked out and just surrounded me, gave me a big hug. And then uh, that, was, that was pretty cool. And then the next day was, was nothing easy. Uh, my, my flights uh, from Nashville kept getting delayed. My wife, Erin, was with me at the time. So she was, she was coming up with me. She was flying with me, which made it a little bit better. But my flight was supposed to leave Nashville at like 6.45 a.m. and get in at noon i i missed like three connectors because the times kept getting changed which meant i was missing connectors anyway i arri arrived to boston at 7 15 for a seven o'clock game and uh i get to get to fenway about 7 30 7 45 and there's no separate players entrance so i was walking in to the main gates because they shut down like the players entrance at like three o'clock so i was walking into the main gates of fenway park with my giant a's bag 
trying to convince the people at the, the uh, ticket gate that I was a player. So they had to uh, make some phone calls. And finally, I got uh, ushered in there. And the same thing, like right where the concessions are, that's where the visitor's locker room is. So I was just surrounded by Red Sox fans uh, going into that first outing. And like three innings later, I was in the game. It was crazy. Something like that, I think of scouting or, you know, there's some usually some kind of interaction trying to prepare for the game. With that short of a turnaround, how are you even able to prepare for something like that? And at Fenway Park, nonetheless. That's a great question. And I think most people that go through a minor league journey with that ultimate goal of being in the big leagues, you think about what it's going to feel like to run out of that bullpen for the first time, multiple times every day you play it in your head, what music's going to be playing, what's, you know, what, what are your surroundings going to be like? And honestly, I had played that over and over and over in my head. It was never in Fenway Park. It was always coming out of the bullpen in Yankee Stadium. <laughs> and that never happened. But, uh, you know, once, once I got there, I didn't get to do any of my normal pregame routine. There were a lot of things that could have derailed that day. But uh, fortunately, uh, I, I was very, very focused and kind of ready for that moment, if you will. I, I had eight years to prepare. So, uh, you know, you, you kind of got to be ready for that. But uh, I was fortunate that that first one went well because being a two-handed pitcher and things like that, you don't you don't know if you're going to get many more of those if, if the first one doesn't go well. So I was just very grateful that my first uh, outing was was two innings. It went really well. My my wife and my family and her family were able to be there at Fenway Park to see it, and it was uh, unforgettable. I'm curious, and you don't have to talk about this if you don't want to, but I'm curious if you want to share your thoughts on some of the recent changes that Major League Baseball has implemented in regards to the designated hitter, some of the you know the clocks being implemented. Do you have any thoughts on some of the changes that have happened since you've left the game? Yeah, I mean it's it's like anything in life. Things evolve. People are going to complain about it at first, but five years from now, it's going to be normal. Two years from now, heck, two months from now, we're going to be used to this. The pitch clock to the to the DH, and I do think baseball is a slow game. It's a boring game at times. I, I do it, did it every day for the majority of my life, and I love it. But there, there are some things that, that need to happen to keep the game moving, to create, you know, some more excitement. And I think Major League Baseball is on the path to do that. These rules wouldn't have had much of an effect on me. We, we had a pitch clock in AAA. I like to work really fast. I like to keep the game moving, keep the defense engaged. All, all things that they're trying to implement now, I, I think, are good things. Your baseball career has come to a close and you're recently inducted into the Creighton Athletics Hall of Fame in 2021. Do you still remain connected to the game and with former teammates or um, have you kind of unplugged and disconnected to get a break from things? No, I'm very connected. <laughs> you know, I still have so many friends still playing at the major league level. Darren Ruff there in Omaha and a lot of my former teammates. When you play for, for six different teams, you, you run across a lot of teammates and with that, a lot of phenomenal people that, that you get to meet their families, their children, and you know just how hard the journey is, but you pull, pull for those people. So I'm very connected to these games. Uh, I'm checking box scores every night. I, I have the MLB package at my house. I'm loving the World Baseball Classic. And then I still talk to quite a few of my uh, Creighton teammates. And as I alluded to earlier with that, that camp uh, we put on for Chris Gradaville, that's on campus at uh, Creighton during the summer. 
So a lot of former teammates and coaches, local high school coaches, a lot of the OPS coaches come back, uh, local college coaches come back to honor Chris. So I'm still very, very connected to the game. If you can share, do you have any upcoming projects or things that you're excited about or just tell us a little bit more about what you're up to? Yeah. So I, I, uh, I, I work here in Peoria now. My wife's family has a technology company here that uh, I work on the audiovisual side of things. So large scale audiovisual vis- install design and uh, coordination team. Uh, you can think of anything from large conference rooms, classrooms, auditorium, stadiums, any type of audio and, and video walls. We, we do that uh, design and installation. So that's from a work standpoint, that's what takes up a lot of my time, a lot of travel and things involved with that. Uh, but personally, love hanging out with my three little ones and my wife, getting back to them all as much as possible. And then, uh, yeah, that uh, camp coming up on June 15th down there at Crete. And we already have uh, 150 kids signed up. So uh, we're, we're really excited to have another good year here for, uh, for Chris. Yeah, that's wow. That's great. That's great to hear. I always like to end with my probably my favorite question. If you can think of any, what would be your favorite central memory or memories? Wow. 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 Another, th- another one where there are, are many, but, uh, I don't know if, if one stands out more than anything else. I'm having a lot of, uh, a lot of flashbacks right now. And a lot of those come, like I said earlier to the courtyard, just hanging out there. You know, Matt Storm was one of my good friends in high school and he's still there now. He's a, a staple of the high school and I can just hear that big voice laughing, you know, making jokes in the courtyard with, you know, 10, 15 people surrounding him and then walking to class and, and having a great day. I, it was, uh, it was truly a special place. And I was able to come back a few weeks ago and, uh, Mr. Wilson gave me a tour of the new library and some other things that I hadn't seen before. And my mind was blown at just, just how nice the school is. And it was always a special place, but with those upgrades they've made to that and the auditorium and the people, which are really what makes central special. Uh, it was really nice to walk around there and see just just how far uh, things have progressed and to know it's still truly a special place. Well, Pat, thanks for coming on the show today to talk with us. I appreciate it and best of luck on your future endeavors. I appreciate you having me and uh, good luck with this as well and all the things you do. Thank you. Thank you. Once again, I want to extend a big thank you to today's guest, 2004 alumnus Pat Venditti. To our listeners, we hope you enjoyed episode 12 of Eagle Tales. We would love to hear what you thought of this episode by connecting with us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching for the Central High School Foundation. If you haven't already, make sure you subscribe to us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts so you can be notified of new episodes as they are released. A complete library of previous episodes can also be found on our website. That's chsfomaha.org. And remember, near or far, you are always part of the Central High School family. Go Eagles! Go Eagles! <laughs>